Welcome to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Take your assigned seats and listen close as the next hour will have you rethinking the public education system while you listen to Ross and his guests share their expertise and experiences in the field. Class is in session. Here is your host, Ross Danis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses on what's possible, not exactly what's wrong with our schools today. We're going to be discussing how we can celebrate all kinds of minds in our schools. Before we get to our two extraordinary guests, some context. Perhaps the best thing that school does is sort. We start sorting at a very young age. Not able to use scissors? You go over here. Know your address and phone number? Go over there. And in third grade, not reading on grade level? Go here. Reading on grade level? Well, you go over there. And the world begins to divide. Some kids get remediated. Some kids get enriched. Some get to engage or disengage, you know, in mind-numbing, word-swallowing, cognitive anesthesia defined by worksheets and repetition. Others get to engage in simulations, put on plays, read interesting books, and the divide gets even wider. And God forbid someone have a hard time sitting still, which, by the way, is the hardest thing in the world to do for a five-year-old. Conversations begin about medication. Maybe someone has ADD or ADHD that requires more medication, which if I may digress for a moment, digress for a moment, daydreaming does not mean you're not paying attention. It just means you're paying attention to something else. The research is so clear about creativity. Creativity requires defocusing the brain so that it does not keep rehashing what it already knows and opens itself up to new ideas. That's why so many people talk about getting an idea while they're in the shower or driving a car on a long trip. I can't imagine what the world would be like without people who would otherwise be diagnosed with ADHD. There'd be no jazz, no rock. If the Wright brothers were in school today, they would be medicated for literal and figurative flights of fancy. Da Vinci imagined helicopters by watching birds. Elon Musk, self-described as on the spectrum, invented an electric car. He puts people into space and is purchasing Twitter for some $43 billion. Could you just imagine him in school? Could you imagine Dave Chappelle, George Carlin, Robin Williams, Kevin Hart in school? The world's a better place because the people who can't sit still and who daydream and have a million things going on in their mind at one time. And interesting about eight, the thing about ADHD is that it seems to be isolated mostly in the Northwest and the, and the East. Apparently people in Kentucky and Nebraska are very focused. Well, today's program is not about ADD or ADHD, and it's not specifically about special education or autism, although we will be touching on those areas. It's about creating schools that celebrate and value differences, different kinds of minds. I once heard the great educator, Howard Gardner, the author of Multiple Intelligence, say that he, quote, ruse the day someone invented the bell curve. He suggests that the bell curve makes some people smart and others not smart while most people are in the big middle. Well, that's absurd. There are lots of ways to be smart. There are all kinds of minds. Today, we're joined by two extraordinary educators, a generation in experience apart, but both forward-thinking educators who embrace the notion that all young people can thrive and have a right to thrive if they're nurtured, are surrounded by love and support, and are accepted and respected for who they are, for their assets, not for their so-called deficits. First up, Dr. Richard Maisel, the founder of Full Value School Communities, a systemic primary prevention, social-emotional learning program for elementary and secondary schools. 
Dr. Maisel has a long and distinguished career as a director of special education in large school districts. He's an author, presenter, and trainer. Most of all, he has the heart of someone who cares about and understands that beyond academics, all young people need and deserve to feel safe, be loved, and supported. I've known Richard for over 25 years. In fact, the last time I met him was when he was operating a school in Western New Jersey. When I visited, I was stunned to see and was pleased to see that there were young people in iron lungs or with braces on their legs and various other sorts of conditions, both physical and mental. In regular education classrooms and through the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, I was able to provide some financial support to help the school build a playground that was ADA friendly. You know, wheelchairs that could be put on swing sets, spring toys with no tail so that kids with leg braces could swing their legs over. Just beautiful. Welcome, Richard. And another amazing educator who's in the first phase of an already extraordinary career, someone who's committed to ensuring that all young people have the opportunity to thrive regardless of differences, physical and emotional and mental challenges, Ms. Mackenzie Dennis. Ms. Dennis has served as Dean of Exceptional Children at a middle school in Nashville, Tennessee, as a board-certified behavior analyst, a certified sex educator who's trained in acceptance and commitment therapy and works with the Sexual Health Alliance. She's also an adjunct professor, a sought-after presenter and trainer and consultant, and is someone like Richard who knows that there are gaps in this area of education nationwide and is dedicated to working with clients and families around topics such as boundaries, relationships, toileting, personal hygiene, safety skills, and sexuality. I might also add that she's my cherished and wonderful daughter. Welcome, Mackenzie. So in our first segment today, we'll ask ourselves, as we always do, in our final segment today, we'll ask ourselves, as we always do, what have we learned today? To help us answer that question, we'll be joined by Miss Kimmy Taylor Matthews, a mom of a young man who has struggled in school. Let's begin with our resident historian. Richard, could you take us to school on the basics of special education? Like for our listeners who may not be familiar with the alphabet soup of education, what's a 504, what's a 504 plan anyway? Well, 504 plan really comes out of um, civil rights law, and it's a way of um, preventing discrimination uh, in the public school setting. It is a general education program, not a special education program like IDEA, and um, there is no special funding provided for it to school districts, but if school districts receive federal money, they are held accountable to... Uh, the American Disabilities Act and 504. And what 504 provides is a method for leveling the playing field for kids who might be experiencing a, a mental or physical um, disability that substantially limits one or more uh, major life activities. And those activities cover the waterfront. And I'll just give you a partial list so you can get a flavor for that. Um, caring for oneself, performing manual tasks, seeing, hearing, eating, sleeping, walking, standing, mm -hmm. lifting. It's, uh, it's quite a list. Wow. And um, what happens is that um, there is a, a 504 committee in every school that develops a, a plan um, to try to support students who present um, with um, one or more of these issues. Uh, typically, um, this would involve um, modifications and accommodations in general ed programs in, you know, reading, language, mm -hmm. arts, math, 
science, whatever. Um, it could also involve access to special education services. But typically, when that starts to happen, the, uh, the program moves more over into education law um, and special education. Um, it serves yeah. kids through 21. And um, just the last interesting part of this is that 504 accommodations can extend into post-secondary training. But at that point, the student needs to become their own advocate and reach out to the institution to let them know uh, that they might need support. You know, you remind me of a really interesting uh, phenomenon or experience that we both had at Randolph in Randolph, uh, New Jersey, where a mm -hmm. woman who was blind uh, came to the Board of Education asking for an accommodation of a bus to take her, her kindergarten kid to school who was living within a mile of the school district saying that she needed the accommodation. Mm hmm on behalf of her child. Of course, the board didn't want to give it to her because they thought it would set a precedent as if blind people all across the country would be rushing to Randolph to, uh, with, their, with their children, you know. But anyway, Mackenzie, thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. Mackenzie, what's an IEP? An IEP is an individualized education program, and it's designed, it's not a 504 in that it is special education. It is federally funded, and it is designed to support students with exceptionalities and get them some programming that's based on their present levels of performance and whatever services they need to meet their individualized goals. And a final question before we jump into our actual main topic. Help me understand the difference between special education and exceptional children. There seems to be a change in, in language, Mackenzie. I believe it is just a movement away from deficit-based thinking, deficit-based language, um, which is a movement I think is happening across the board. Um, so we're moving away from special education and into other words, differently abled, neurodivergent, exceptional, um, and other categories. Interesting. So it's interesting that the work you're doing, both of you, may seem different, but the work that Richard's doing with Full Value Schools and what you're doing, Mackenzie, around acceptance and commitment theory and your BCBA work, that you're both committed to the same core values. Richard, in your extensive experience, what, what brought you to this notion of full value schools? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what they are. Sure. Well, um, full value is, is based upon um, six kind of universal behavioral norms. At least we found them to be universal when we look at all the various uh, social emotional learning programs that are out there. They all tend to nest in, in these six behavioral norms. And so I can, and go, I can go through them quickly for you if you'd like. Mm -hmm. Please. Uh, the first one is the idea of being present or being here. And I think uh, for us to be able to self-actualize, for us to be able to be engaged, we need to be present with the work that we're doing and that the people that we're with. And of course, being present for a preschooler is quite different from a high schooler, but um, it's able, one is able to define what that looks like for, for either end of the spectrum. Um, the next one is to be safe. And what we mean by that is creating a culture and climate of not just physical safety, but also emotional, emotional safety. Because if one feels emotionally safe, it allows them to um, be able to attend to learning. Mm. Uh, the next is uh, be honest, and um, that requires being able to give and also receive honest feedback. And I just want to add at this point that these are not um, isolated 
um, behavioral norms. They're integrated. They work together. So, for example, one can be honest, but one can be brutally honest, which then would tend to work against being emotionally safe. So they all kind of work synergistically. Um, the next one would be setting goals. You know, one of the things that we found over the years uh, in terms of looking at uh, structured academic training programs and what's happening in schools is that goal setting is not really something that's taught. And yet it is really essential in terms of being able to take a look at where you've come from, where you are and where you're going to be able to define what resources you need to get from one place to another and to know when you've gotten there. And also to determine whether the goals you set for yourself are meaningful and important and yours, not somebody else's. Um, the next one, the next foundational behavioral norm um, is a biggie, particularly for adults, which is to be able to let go and move on. Um, seems to be um, a, a tough Rubicon to cross for people. Um, to be able to, to get into conflict, to be able to resolve it, and to be able to continue to work together. And the last one is care for self and others. And um, what I really like about this behavioral norm is the idea that if you're not taking care of yourself emotionally, spiritually, physically, then you're going to have a hard time being able to take care of people around you. Right, right. We wow. created... We created these six behavioral norms. Um, we figured out a way to operationalize them. Um, and um, one of the main focuses that we have is something called co-creation, which empowers kids to have an equal voice in the, the creation and opera uh, operationalizing of these goals uh, with each other in the school setting across um, classrooms and playgrounds and hallways and wherever they might be. So I guess that's sort of a a very brief overview of the, the foundational pieces of the program. Really amazing. Really, really special. We're going to come back and dig a little deeper into that in just a couple of minutes. But, you know, Mackenzie, as you listen to Richard talk, are the young people you work with embraced by the larger school community? Um, I enjoy that, Richard. It sounds so much like acceptance and commitment therapy and the, the components that are built out, which was cool to hear. Um, typically the students that I work with are not kind of accepted typically into an inclusion fashion. It's typically an afterthought in terms of programming, environmental arrangements, um, teaching strategies. So that's something that I advocate for, um, really just to not consider it something that we're doing for this student apart from the whole group, but truly it's universally designed so that it meets everyone's needs without some student needing to be pulled out or get one-on-one -on -one services. It should be just designed for them. I know you work with students who others would find almost impossible to work with. Under what circumstances would you recommend that a student be placed in a program outside of the traditional school? Uh, typically, we would follow any sort of tiered program, so whether it's an RTI program or whatever district program is working towards making every accommodation service possible within the actual school assigned um, and putting services within that school. But then there are cases where behaviors are at such an intense level that's, you know, also not preserving their dignity and they're not getting anything out of it. And maybe we need to change that structure briefly in order to gain some skills in order to reacclimate um, into a bigger group. So that's something that's really challenging because um, I always want the student to be included, but it does happen when there are high needs. And by high needs, what, what, what would that look like? 
those are the typical student profile would be someone who's engaging in a lot of physical aggression, elopement, um, in what my was area. the last thing you said physical aggression what was the second thing elopement so they're maybe running off campus oh. or you know running away from home and we are having trouble keeping them safe um and then what i specialize in is really sexual behavior so students who are engaging in high levels of sexual behaviors in a classroom environment um mm. you can imagine the, the ethical concerns that come up um for the school for other students in the classroom um, so in those cases, sometimes we do need to take a, a step back, gain some skills, and then reintegrate. Um, but that would be kind of the last resort if we aren't able to do that within the school setting. You know, us old folks, when we hear words like elopement, we think somebody's running off to get married. <laughs> yes. It's interesting that they've chosen that word to represent both running away and mm -hmm. running towards someone. <laughs> so, you know, this is a niche, isn't it? You know, working with young people around uh, with autism and their sexuality. Does it play out a lot in classrooms? I mean, is it important? I mean, does it, do you see a lot of this happening in schools? I think that there's a lot of sexuality happening in any middle or high school that I've ever been in. I think that's probably a common experience. Um, regardless, right? Regardless of. Yes. Yeah. It's a high period for any sort of sexual behaviors to come up. I think there's just a lot of gaps in how we're educating individuals with disabilities and individuals with autism on those behaviors that are coming up. And that's why we end up having them play out in different ways. Um, and then there's a lot of shame in that, that teachers experience and staff experience um, where they aren't really able to tackle that as well. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. In, in your full value schools, Richard, do you deal with issues like this or how are they dealt with? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to mention in um, reflecting on the work that, that Mackenzie does is that um, we have been able to use this program with completely nonverbal students, um, students with autism who, uh, and students with multiple disabilities. And we use all kinds of, you know, icon driven methodologies to be able to get them to, you know, be authentic contributors to um, coming to what we call a full value commitment which is creating uh, a set of um, behaviors around those norms that I talked about earlier, and also those distractors that get in the way. So, you know, in terms of some of the issues that um, Mackenzie raised around, you know, kids who are definitely engaged in um, exploring sexuality and exploring relationships is that those conversations around what happens are wrapped into this full value commitment. Mm -hmm. Also something that we call calling group where kids can come together and under the, the guidance of uh, teachers uh, have an opportunity to work through whatever issues they have. Thanks. And Thank you, Richard. Richard, just to put a pin there for just a moment, because in a moment, we're going to take a short break. When we do, we'll learn more about MECED, the nonprofit that I lead in Charlotte, North Carolina. When we return, we'll go deeper with our guests to help us understand what schools would look like if they celebrated all kinds of minds and embraced differences. Our second break, we're going to learn more about full value schools. But for now, don't go away. The best is yet to come. We'll see you on the other side. So MECED is a college and career readiness uh, institution that is very committed to workforce development, has been for quite some time, with a special emphasis on making sure that the kids who face obstacles in our community have a fair shot at a bright future. 
Right now we're working with young people from uh, Garinger, from Harding University High, West Charlotte, and Chambers High School. Uh, before the pandemic, they were all on the bottom fifth of the economic ladder. These days, they, it's hard for them to even find that ladder. Then we provide job shadows, uh, paid internships. We'll put, pay for career clothing, transportation, food, certification programs. The goal is to make sure that every, every young person in Mecklenburg County has an opportunity to, to live a life where they can thrive, both in school and out of school. And we believe that that doesn't happen just by being in school. That school isn't enough. That to be educated requires much more than school. Experiences matter. My experiences with MedCAD, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I, th I do think MedCAD is invested in me um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students. And it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so MedCAD means opportunity. Family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways, we work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium, because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections, and, and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would 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 do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not. I don't know having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on. You know, different family. MECED's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are going to need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. And we want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're, you're hitting on academics, you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like, you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and MacEd, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. And welcome back, everyone, to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses not on what's wrong with our schools, but rather what's possible. Today, we're discussing what it would look like if our schools celebrated differences and how our schools can embrace and support all kinds of minds. We've been speaking with two extraordinary educators, Dr. Richard Maisel and Ms. Mackenzie Dennis. In our final segment, we'll be joined by Ms. Kimmy Taylor Matthews, an extraordinary mom. Ms. Matthews will hold us uh, accountable and answer, help us answer the question, what do we learn today? So let's go back to where we left off. We were talking about what it would take to create safe, supportive, nurturing learning environments for all young people. This may be a challenging question and either one of you can jump in on it, but, but I'm curious, what are the financial implications? Are, Richard, uh, let's go with you, with you, Richard. Are full value schools more expensive to operate? Um, I don't think so. I mean, you know, with any kind of a program, whether it's bringing in a new uh, reading curriculum or writing curriculum or um, uh, STEM curriculum, you need to spend some upfront money on training mm-hmm. and equipment. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is um, coming to the understanding that social emotional learning and culture and climate, as the research indicates, um, is of equal value in terms of um, promoting uh, a high, highly effective school and academic climate than just academics alone. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like pushing an enormous boulder uphill, but if you go to Castle, which is the uh, kind of a clearinghouse for social emotional learning, you will find um, really good peer-reviewed studies that indicate um, that these programs make a significant difference in academic progress when you have a strong uh, social emotional learning program operating. So yeah, there's some upfront training costs, um, but uh, at least in terms of the model that we used, it's a train the trainer model. And we try to create a cadre of people who can make the program self-sustaining so that we basically facilitate ourselves out of a job. That's interesting. You know, Mackenzie, in your school, are there teachers, let me put this delicately, who don't really accept young people the way you and others accept them? And how do you deal with that? Well, I'm currently still teaching myself and I'm pro teacher all the way. And I think that there are teachers who are just ill-equipped based on whatever program they went through to get their teaching license. Um, so I don't think that they treat students differently. I think that if something comes up in their classroom that they have no idea how to handle, that's so hard as a teacher. Um, as you know, maybe this is the first time the student's not listening to you or the student's destroying your classroom and you're, you know, you're feeling so almost insecure about how to handle that. And then it makes sense that you would want someone else to take the student out of the room. Now that's, you know, whew, it's off mm-hmm. your, your list of the things that, you know, there are so many things that teachers have to do. So I don't necessarily think there's teachers that are resistant. I think there's teachers that for no fault of their own have just been really ill-equipped from whatever program they've been in. Um, and now are just, you know, seeking, seeking help more than anything. Right. It's, it's hard enough teaching um, all of the kids in a room, you know, um, you have somebody who's really struggling. I can imagine how challenging that would be to any teacher. 
Just to piggyback on that, Ross, when we do trainings with teachers, we ask two questions. Um, how many of you have had any kind of structured learning in terms of culture and climate in your uh, undergraduate and graduate programs? Mm-hmm. Nobody raises their hands. And how many of you have had any kind of instruction around uh, goal setting? And nobody raises their hand. So, you know, as a special ed director, I would go into a classroom of a, a first year uh, special ed or general ed teacher. They've got, you know, 20 kids and they're basically flying on instinct in terms of creating and maintaining a learning environment that works for kids. They have no formalized training. What I find remarkable about other people's experience, including Mackenzie's, you know, she's a first year Teach for America Corps member who landed in a special education classroom in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, out of Lafayette via New Jersey. Uh, so I don't know how you did it. Mackenzie, what, you know, as a first year teacher with no experience in special education, how did you manage that? I think so much of that is, uh, this could potentially be my tragic trait as well, is that I do think everything is figure outable. I think there's a solution to everything. And I just kind of bulldozed my way through that first year um, and did a lot of self teaching and, you know, seeking other providers to provide information um, and trainings, which, you know, I, I had that energy and the capacity, but not everyone does. And that shouldn't be something that teachers then have to go and seek out um, as a part of the first year. Right. I'm going to jump now to state and federal level policies. Are you aware of any state and federal level policies that might need to be changed in order to incentivize schools to address the needs of all kids? Richard, you first. Oh, that's a tough question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first thing is I'm not aware of uh, policies that I would say deliberately compartmentalize, um, you know, uh, academics from affective learning other than, you know, where the, where the money goes. And, uh, you know, there is a, a, a lack of funding for um, these kinds of programs. It really is at the discretion of the district. And, you know, their priorities are typically focused on, you know, academic growth, academic progress being, you know, in the top 10 school, schools mm-hmm. of their state or whatever. Um, I think there needs to be, you know, a, a continuing philosophical shift, um, in, you know, to the understanding that um, one can't exist without the other. That, you know, excellence in academics can't exist without um, people uh, coming to a place of where they can um, feel more empowered as individuals um, and better at self-regulation. Speaking of the word regulation, I should have included that when I talked about state and federal level policies. Mackenzie, how much do regulations uh, impact your work, the regulatory aspects of special education? Uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. I know in Tennessee specifically, you know, IDA is so underfunded. I know that's not just the case here. So there's a lot of financial pieces that just become roadblocks um, with kids with exceptionalities that maybe just need more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also just, you know, general rigidity within the school system. Um, if a kid may need, you know, half day here, half day here, and some more services, there's a lot of pushback around anything that's not sort of the typical middle of the road student. Um, And I don't know, you know, necessarily where that comes from. I think it's probably fear-based, but that prevents a lot of kids getting what they need as well when we're not kind of being flexible with how we're using our resources uh, additionally. Um, New Jersey, same thing. 
when you were in New Jersey, Richard? Oh, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think part of it is that there's a rigidity around program structure and design. Uh, for example, when I was in the district that, that you and I talked about that had the Universal Playground, um, we had 95% of our students um, who were who had special needs, severe special needs, as you as you noted, uh, remain in district, and that was because there was a philosophy around that and a belief that we could do as well or better than a private school that was 50 miles from home, uh, where kids would be isolated from their same age peers and from their community. So you know, you know, the the it really has to do with uh, mindset. And, you know, how you can then take those resources and use them, you know, use them efficiently within a school setting, being creative. I recall you telling me something about um, incentivizing, well, not incentivizing, but giving a challenge to, to parents saying, like, just give me a year. What's yeah, that all about? Yeah, well, when, I, when I came to the last district that I was in, uh, we had a lot of students that were placed out of district, you know, students with autism, students with multiple disabilities. And um, because of my experience with those programs, um, building them in-house, I felt that we could do a better job with the resources that we had. So, um, you know, with, with the parents who had their kids out of district, they were very, very worried about moving their kids back because you're moving from a known quantity to an unknown quantity. And what I said to them was, um, we can do uh, as good or better than the placement your son or daughter is in and have them in their community, in their local school, with their peers interacting um, uh, on a regular basis. And I said, give me a year to, to build and run that program for your child. And if you're not happy, you can go back where you were. And mm-hmm. that really built a level of trust um, mm-hmm. with parents who didn't feel it was in either or. And that they were, you know, kind of jumping off a bridge with no way to get back up onto the bridge again. And save the district a boatload of money. It did. It was less expensive, but we were also able to provide um, commensurate services, you know, in terms of speech, OTPT, um, you know, ABA services, um, whatever was needed, we were able to provide um, because we could do it more efficiently, efficiently and also saved a lot of money on transportation, which was, you know, another piece. As our current practitioner expert on the panel today, Mackenzie, could you give us some examples of the kinds of strategies you use to work with, with the kids you work with, you know, particularly around sexual education behavior? Just some, just some examples, because it's hard for me to imagine. I think the key in thinking about, you know, interventions and strategies, and I use this example a lot, is that a lot of them are like sidewalk ramps. So yes, the sidewalk ramp, it helps the person in the wheelchair, but it also helps the mom in a stroller and also helps, you know, the jogger when you have that little ramp going down. And all of the strategies I use are not actually that unique or different in terms of approach. Um, They would help any middle schooler, um, you know, in terms of sexuality, talking about sexuality being number one, um, we're not really having those conversations with anyone. So of course it would help when I have a explicit conversation or if I provide you know, resources or visuals. Um, so those are the types of things that I do, but I like to emphasize that it's not something that that specific or that unique. Um, it's just, you know, doing it a different way. And I think that would help most children. Um, how, how many young people in your school would be, can, would be classified out of, like what's the percentage of students that have a classification? 
in the school that I'm in, I think we're at 15%. Uh, the students that I work with are the top 4%. So more so the kids needing higher levels of supports, multiple disabilities, low incidence disabilities. Hmm. And, and what do you do to uh, de-stress? Because it sounds like an extraordinarily stressful job. You know what? When I'm working with children, I don't feel that way. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm working with adults, I need to de-stress <laughs> and uh, take, take a moment or go for a walk or, you know, clear my head uh, just because I think, you know, kids are so malleable and they don't have that rigidity. Um, so it's awesome. And it's awesome to see those gains. And that fills my bucket a lot. I think Richard and I can relate. I used to jokingly say, of course, I'm not serious now that, you know, if it wasn't for kids, teachers, and parents, schools would be really fun places to run. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, changing an adult's mindset um, around these issues has got, it's got to be hard. How about parents? You work with parents quite a bit, like in their homes, um, even teaching, you know, teenagers to, uh, toilet training. So are, are parents a key part of your equation here? Yes, parents are, of course. And I do believe strongly is, you know, parents as primary sex educators more so than myself and empowering parents. Um, so, yeah, parents are amazing. I think I, you know, I talk a lot about and present a lot about the role of shame in parenting potentially a student with disabilities and how that plays out. Um, hmm. And the thing about shame is that part of it is just feeling that inferior, like someone else should be doing this or there's someone else who can do this better. So when you empower parents and you're like, you can do these same things, these are the skills, um, that's typically where I see the most progress um, when we kind of tackle that shame piece early on. Man, God bless both of you. Good work. You're angels on earth. And, um, this conversation has been so, so interesting. And I'm sure our listeners are really engaged. They're learning and perhaps taking some ideas back to their schools or parents are taking ideas to their child's teachers. We're going to take our second and final break in a moment. We're also going to learn more about MECED as well as full value schools. Pretty excited to, um, to have them as part of our promotional material. So we'll see you in just a few moments. Don't go away. We've still got a lot to do. Thank you. What is a full value community? It is a culture and climate where students and faculty interact with each other to create and maintain a focused, productive, and collaborative community. The community utilizes effective skills and practices to encourage meaningful participation in the life of the school. Specific tools include experiential learning, the activity-based process, adoption of full value commitments, calling group, control to empowerment, integration of mindfulness, and the use of SMART goals. The community is formed around six foundational principles. Be here to fully engage in all aspects of the learning process. Be safe to be careful with each other's emotional well-being. Be honest to act with courage and integrity. Set goals, define and commit to measurable, achievable goals. Care for self and others. Nurture the development of empathy and compassion. And let go and move on to resolve conflicts and accept that mistakes can lead to growth. Find us at fullvaluecommunities.org. MechEd's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are going to need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school, 
80% of their life is spent outside of school. And we want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're, you're hitting on academics. You're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and MacEd, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. Welcome back, everyone, to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses not on what's wrong with our schools, but what's possible. And today we've been discussing what it would look like if our schools embrace differences and how our schools can embrace and support all kinds of minds. Again, we've been speaking to two extraordinary educators, Dr. Richard Maisel and Ms. Mackenzie Danis. In this, our third segment, we are going to try to answer the question, what do we learn today? But before we do, I'm curious about the, this thing called barn door something, Dr. Maisel. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, you know, one of the things that I found is an impediment to um, making things, making change happen uh, in public education is there, there's a fear that if you make an exception, it will become a rule. And that isn't necessarily the case. I think that, you know, kids and parents bring uh, concerns to the table. They're unique and individual, and they need to be addressed that way. And to accommodate to those concerns in a thoughtful manner, um, you know, keeping in mind the bigger picture, but not being driven by it, um, is really an important lesson for schools to learn. Um, that allowing one thing to happen for a child who deserves and needs that doesn't mean it's going to happen for 50 other kids. Um, so again, you take each uh, situation uh, as it comes. Thank you for that. One of the things I've learned in this conversation is that it takes, it takes um, a real commitment to those six principles you mentioned, PLES, I might add, mm -hmm. uh, of a full value school and to creating an environment that supports and nurtures different kinds of minds. Um, and it seems to me that getting the regular ed population engaged is every bit as important and valuable in that not just, it's not just important for kids with special needs to be supported, but for regular, so-called regular ed kids to learn from and embrace differences and get to know that 
everyone has something to add, some value to add. How, how is that nurtured in your school, Mackenzie? Or maybe it's not. <laughs> I don't, that's why I hesitated. Um, I think there's a big effort in that direction um, in doing incorporating more social-emotional curricula. And I've noticed that across the board. Um, so there's a lot of attempts. Um, I think there's just some gaps in terms of who's doing that work or, you know, is that an outside provider or is that something that we're just going to provide as a school? And those questions are still being teased out um, because it's just a beginning process, at least in the district that I work in. So a lot of it is just trial and error at this point, unfortunately. For some reason, this reminded me of a time in, in my own career where I was teaching, oh gosh, democratic principles in uh, Romania, how to infuse democratic principles in the curriculum. And after the end, at the end of the workshop, they said, so we're going to do democratic principles on Tuesdays and Thursdays between 1 and 145. And I think the same might be true of social emotional learning. As I hear you speak, it seems like, is it, is it an add-on? You know, we do this and then on Thursdays we do social emotional learning. Is it like, how do you integrate it into the, that very fabric of the school? Is, is that a question for me? Yeah, it's a question for you, Richard. Happy to answer it because um, an SEL program needs to be woven into the fabric of everything that happens in a mm -hmm. building, and um, not only for kids, but the, but staff needs to be uh, held. They need to hold themselves accountable for the same things that the kids are being asked to do. Um, you know, kids can smell. You know, do as I say, not as I do, uh, a mile away. And in order for a program to really be authentic, from the superintendent to the preschooler, everybody needs to be um, buying in to the, to, you know, to the values of the program. Um, with full value, it's integrated into the academic curriculum as well. So you can use uh, full value experiential learning to teach you know, math, science, social studies, physical education, uh, creative and performing arts. Um, students basically become managers of their own classroom experience in terms of um, the culture and climate in their classroom. Um, it, it has to be, as I said, woven into every aspect of uh, the school community and school life. So parenthetically to what you're saying, you know, here in Charlotte, North Carolina, we've, we had 855 teachers resign uh, mid-year and since August, and we've had over 50 principals resign. We can't find teachers, much less special education teachers. And when we talk to them about why they're leaving, it's not money. They're demoralized. They're feeling as though, you know, I entered this profession for certain reasons, and now I've just become a standardized test score. Parents are disengaged. Kids are disengaged. My principal doesn't support me. If all of those things, if you expect me to put up with all of those things, you're going to have to pay me uh, more. And so I just wonder, in Mackenzie's case, how, how challenging is it to find teachers who who embrace the kinds of things that we've been talking about, social, emotional learning, and just, you know, coming to the profession with that as a commitment. It's really hard. And I think it's important to name the state that we are in because post COVID is, is a real different school environment. Um, right. My experience we've had, and I work in the behavior sector, 10 times the amount of behavioral referrals than previous years since COVID. So there's a component of just uh, instability within the school environment, the teacher environment, there's high turnover. So it's a hard place to jump into <laughs> as a new teacher mm -hmm. or as someone who's really passionate 
because there's just a lot of moving parts. Um, so right now I know we are doing, and the district is making incentivized bonuses and, you know, more days off, but that, that will be only part of the bigger problem to solve if we're going to make a stable socio-emotional sound school for everyone that's enjoyable and fulfilling to work in. I heard someone once say that we make important what's measurable instead of measuring what matters. And, you know, when, when you're measuring reading scores and math scores, we make important reading scores and math scores. No one's measuring social emotional learning, uh, unfortunately. Is there a way of doing that? If, if it were such a value, are there ways to measure, Richard, social emotional learning? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are, um, the, the name of the company escapes me, but there's a, a there's a, uh, a group in Boston that basically spends their time uh, developing um, um, not only paper and pencil, pencil scales, but, you know, well-validated observational instruments for uh, measuring growth in, around, across various areas of uh, uh, social-emotional learning. And as I mentioned earlier, Castle, which is a, a major clearinghouse for SEL uh, research, um, is um, front and center. In, in providing schools with um, not only programs that are research-based and validated, but also instrumentation for uh, measuring progress. Do you have a way of measuring social-emotional learning in Nashville, Tennessee? Why? Oh, so sorry. We, I mean, we've done some work. A lot of the work, I'll be honest, uh, starts and stops. <laughs> it's hmm. a, It gets started and then due to, you know, teacher shortage or changing schedules, which is happening a lot due to teacher shortage, we kind of start, restart, start, restart. Um, and there is progress monitoring. I know we've done, you know, FastBridge, which has some SEL components, but it really isn't being fully done to completion to have something measurable. And mm. that's super unfortunate. That's not uncommon. I mean, that's been the way in public education for so many years. We, we start something, we stop, we get track. Oh, we used to do critical thinking in the 80s. Now we do cooperative learning in the 90s. Uh, we don't do that anymore. So, you know, someone once said it's, uh, it's like the pendulum is like a wrecking ball in education. One thing comes in, another thing goes out. Um, but in your case, you're talking about these fits and these starts that, that, you know, you move on to something else because of certain circumstances, like what teacher, teachers change or turnover, or principals, administrators change. Yes. And I'm sure, Richard, you experienced this, but at least in my district, SEL is typically the first place to go. So if we had an SEL block and we have that teacher, we need to move around now, that needs to be intervention. And now SEL will done, be done during assemblies. So it typically is, unfortunately, the first thing to go and it shouldn't be. It should be the only thing that consistently stays <laughs> if we mm -hmm. were doing it right. Um, but yeah, it's either teacher shortage, high turnover, you know, different mindsets coming within a school building that it tends to be pushed aside. Yeah. And now more than ever, you, you indicated, you know, post pandemic, I meet students all the time who are, there's just a, such a sense of hopelessness and despair. They haven't been with their friends in a year and a half. They've lost, they tell, eighth graders will tell me I'm really a sixth grader. Um, 11th and 12th graders are, you know, no one gets uh, penalized for being truant anymore because of the pandemic. So they just don't come to school. And, um, and it completely disengaged and it's really, really unfortunate. So we're, we're like everybody else trying to hire more uh, counselors, more social workers. But I, I don't think as both of you have taught me talk, in terms of what did we learn today, 
that it's not about hiring more social workers and more counselors because it, in a sense, you've outsourced it. You're not, you're not taking responsibility for it. You think somebody else is going to take care of it. And what we hear about full value schools is that, nope, nope, nope. No one else is going to take care of it. It's all of, our, it's all of us who are responsible for the safety and security and mental and physical well-being of all of our children. Richard, any thoughts as we come to the close of our program today? Well, I, you know, I think what you said, that's, that's it in a nutshell. I think that, um, you know, primary prevention work in the area of culture and climate in schools is hard work. Um, you know, you need to rejuvenate and renew it every year. People come and go. You've got to train new people. Um, you know, in the last district I was in, we had 2,500 kids and 500 faculty practicing full value. And it made a difference. It made a difference mm -hmm. in, in kids' lives. Uh, it changed them. And we integrated the parents into that process as well. They would call group around the dinner table to talk about issues. So um, it's doable, but it requires a sustained commitment. Um, but I certainly think it's uh, absolutely essential and worthwhile. And a commitment from the entire community. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not just the school. I, you know, the more, the, the more touch points you have mm -hmm. where kids are hearing a common language and experiencing a common process, the better integrated it becomes. Um, mm -hmm. But certainly in, in terms of the school, it needs to be principals, teachers, kids, custodians, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, the superintendent, everybody needs, has a role in this and needs to be a part of it. Well, I can picture that day. And of course, this program is about what's possible, not what's wrong. So I'm going to just wrap my head around that and go to sleep tonight thinking all is going to be well if we just had more full service schools and more, more schools like the, the school that Mackenzie's working in and uh, trying, trying to turn things around in the right direction. Mackenzie Dennis, do you have any final words before we conclude our program today? I want to stay on that note. It is possible and mm -hmm. it has been done and we just need to keep doing the work. So I would love to end on that positive, great note. Yeah. Have you, uh, what have you learned today? Myself? Yeah. I've learned just to outsource more. I think it's hard when you get stuck in a district and how things are and the rigidity and connecting with other people and learning about different ideas is really something I want to encourage, not just myself, but other administrators to do so that they can get models that work instead of just being shown kind of half-baked half models of SEL and other supports. Half-baked models of SEL. Yeah, I'm sure that they're around somewhere. Uh, I'd like to imagine, you know, schools that aren't so obsessed with test scores and aren't so obsessed with the, or, or they're, in the they're lost in the thick of thin things as opposed to doing really what matters in the lives of young people. Uh, because that's, you know, when we grow up, you know, when, when young people are two and three, no one, no one actually, no parent would say, boy, I want that person to really do well on their ACTs. They want their kids to be happy and well-adjusted and loved and feel supported in this world. And so that's the, that's the note I'm going to end on. Richard, do you have a final thought? You know, I do. And I, I, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read very quickly from Maurice Elias, who I'm, I know you probably know. I, I do. And uh, he basically says, his last piece is, we must prepare our children for the tests of life, not a life of tests. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, this has been really a wonderful conversation. And I was going to say amazing. Actually, no, um, extraordinary, frankly. And I hope 
uh, that both of you succeed in your goals and that, that we transform our schools into places that are nurturing and supportive of the kids that uh, matter the most to all of us. Thanks for listening to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses on what's possible, not what's wrong. And thank you again to our amazing guest, Dr. Richard Maisel, Ms. Mackenzie Dennis. For more information about Full Value Schools, go to www.fullvalueschools.org. For more information about Mackenzie Dennis and her work, go to www.dannisbehavioralsolutions.com. And of course, you can find MECED on the web at www.meched.org. Thanks for your service to children and their learning, both of you. I know you have given us a lot to think about. Thank you all for your, both for your contributions to today's program. Join us next week when we'll be joined by James Ford, uh, the founder and director of Creed. Uh, You'll learn more about that next week. The program is focused on equity, how we can make our schools more equitable. Until then, you've been listening to Let's Reinvent School, Onward. Thank you for listening to Let's Reinvent School. Tune in next week as we give you some more great insight into the state of the public education system. Until next week, class dismissed.